The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw that many of the Pharisees and scribes were coming to his baptism, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Already the ax is laid at the root of the tree and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but He who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Already he has his winnowing fork in his hand and he shall clear his threshing floor. The wheat he shall gather into his barn and the chaff he shall burn up with unquenchable fire. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe, as our collect has said this morning, that all scripture has been written for our learning. And so we pray now that by your Holy Spirit, we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this your holy word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Our world needs fixing. Our world desperately needs fixing. And we have got lots of opinions about how to fix our world. I've got lots of opinions about how to fix various aspects of the world. I want to For example, I want to fix soccer. I mean, having watched so much uh, soccer during the World Cup, I've got a few suggestions. In fact, five suggestions on how we can fix soccer. First of all, you need to make the playing surface smaller. Secondly, we need to shrink the teams. You need to maybe get down to five on five. Three forwards, two defenders, and throw in a sixth goaltender, right? You also need to shrink the goal. Come on. And I think fourth, we need to have the players come on and off without having to stop the play. Finally, the best of all, I think we just ice the whole surface. (laughs) 
Some of you will take another 10 minutes to catch up with that joke, but that's all right, that's all right. There's so many things we wanna fix in this world. But the truth is, you and I need to be fixed the most. You and I are most desperate in need of being fixed. You know, there's a biblical word we use for being fixed. It's throughout John's sermon here in Matthew chapter three. If you're with me in the Bible, your Bibles or the Pew Bibles or your phones, Matthew three, John keeps using this word about being fixed. It's the word repentance, repent. It means to change, not just to change your thinking, but to change your life, to be transformed, to be fixed. And this is what we long for. We all long to be fixed. We all long to repent. But the struggle we run into is that repentance, that ongoing, continuous, consistent life of repentance, just often feels just out of reach. I mean, often this time of year, we get very sentimental, don't we? Right, you will get a sentimental feeling when you hear, right? We walk through stores, like we're at Walmart and you hear bits of music and suddenly we feel like, oh, there's all these things I wanna do better. I wanna call my mom more often and I wanna spend a little more time with the kids and there's these things we can do as a family and maybe I should be a little more generous this time of year. And we get all these little sentimental sort of pseudo repentant feelings, but how long do they last? How long does sentimentalism last for you? I get to the checkout counter and it's already gone. (laughs) What we need is a true repentance. We long for is a true transformation something that goes deep and something that is consistent and continues in our lives. See, the good news of what John is preaching here in the wilderness of Judea at the Jordan is he's pointing us towards a repentance, but he's not just calling us to repentance as some kind of thing that you gotta add to your Christmas to-do list. What John is telling us is that we must repent, but even more so, one is coming who will make our repentance possible. One is coming who will do the work of transformation within us, that will usher in this new life of repentance, this new life of transformation day by day. There is one coming who will make it possible for us to be fixed, to live into a life of transformation and repentance. And his name is Jesus. He arrives in verse 13, the very next verse, we're told that Jesus came to John at the Jordan. The one that we've been waiting for that John is pointing to has come. And here's what John is effectively saying about Jesus. Jesus, the one for John who is coming, the mighty one, Jesus comes for the unrepentant. Jesus comes into our world for the unrepentant for those who recognize that they can't repent on their own strength, that they need help. These are the ones Jesus comes for, the unrepentant. But what he does when he comes for the unrepentant is he remakes us. He transforms us. He makes a change within us, unrepentant, remade. Why? So that now we can live into a life of repentance. 
so that we can begin actually entering into this transformation. He comes and remakes the unrepentant so that we can start repenting and living into a new life of transformation. This is the gospel. See, first Jesus comes for the unrepentant. Look at verse two, John's message in the wilderness repents for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has come near. See, what John is proclaiming is that the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom is breaking into our world and we need to get ready for it. We need our lives to start aligning with that reign and rule of God. And so we must repent. We must be changed. We've got to get fixed. But here's the thing, friends. Repentance is not a Christian virtue in and of itself. It's a Christian word. We use the word repentance. But every other religion, every other worldview, every other self-help book is all about repentance, right? At its core, it's about you need to get fixed, you need to get changed, and here's our program for you getting fixed and changed. Whatever the book is, whatever the guru is, everybody in our world is on about repentance. The problem is, as we try to enter into repentance, is we recognize that though we want to be fixed, we somehow can't consistently grab a hold of it. Though we want to repent deeply and in a prolonged, continuous way, it keeps slipping through our fingers. In the words of St. Paul in Romans chapter 7, a phrase that could almost be lifted out of my own prayer journal at times, and perhaps even yours, though I know the good that I desire to do, I do not have the ability to do it. The good that I want to do, I do not do. The evil that I do not want to do, I end up doing. And then he says in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? This is our experience as we seek to be fixed, as we seek to live into this repentant good life. We can not achieve it. And we try to comfort ourselves, I know. We comfort ourselves we compare ourselves. We say, well, you know, I know that I, I can't quite enter consistently into this life of repentance, but, you know, look at that guy. And, and look at that family. And look at that situation. You know, I'm better than them, right? Or, or we do the percentage game. We say, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I finish the day, eight out of 10 commandments kept. You know, that's 80%. That's a B plus. I mean, it's pretty good, right? Except that James tells us in chapter two, verse 10, that anyone who keeps the whole of the law yet fails in one point is accountable for it all. My dog, our dog, Tiggy, is an interesting picture for me. He is really good at being ashamed. I mean, we walk in the door and instantly we know he's done something disgusting and evil and terrible. He just embodies the shame. I mean, you don't even need to look around the room. He's just got this quivering, shameful thing to the point where sometimes just for fun, we'll say to him, be ashamed to Tiggy. And he'll just get all, you know, he's just, he's so aware of his shame. But what's interesting about Tiggy, aware of, of just how much gross, terrible, evil things he does, is that Tiggy is for me a picture of, 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 of someone, a creature who understands that he's truly unrepentant. Like Tiggy's, Tiggy's shame is that he just is like, I just can't help myself. I, just, I know, I know, I know, I know. Like if you leave it on the edge of the counter, I'm going to eat it no matter what it is, no matter what it is. 
My dog knows he's unrepentant. My dog knows he can't help himself, but I love to still play games. I love to still suggest to myself, no, I can defend myself. I can give excuses for my behavior. My dog knows he's unrepentant. I play games. It's a little bit like the Pharisees. You notice in verse seven of our text that John zeroes in on the Pharisees. And it's interesting he does that. The Pharisees come out and he looks at them and says, you brood of vipers, you hypocrites, you fakers. Now, it's important we hear this because just in case you're listening to me thus far and you think, well, come on, at the end of the day, I'm really not that bad. Like, you know, really, does God think that, you know, does he look on me and think I'm a really an unrepentant person? The Pharisees of Jesus' day, we love to pick on the Pharisees. We think they're terrible because we read the Bible. And they're, but, but the truth is they were the moral high bar of Jesus' day. The, the Pharisees were absolutely the, the best behaved people in the community. These were the moral heroes of their day. They kept the law perfectly, but the problem was their hearts were corrupt within them. They thought that somehow they could attain good standing before God by what they did. But honestly, if if John's gonna point fingers at the Pharisees and say that they're corrupt, man, I got nothing to say about my own behavior. But here's the truth. Jesus comes, Jesus comes to earth for the unrepentant. He comes for us. You know, it's interesting, verse 13, he shows up in the scene. He's, he comes to the Jordan. What does he do next? He gets baptized. He gets into the water with the other sinners. And it's a picture of Jesus' ministry. He bookends Jesus' ministry. At the beginning of his earthly ministry, there is Jesus amongst the sinners in the water. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, there is Jesus hanging on a cross between two sinners. This is his whole life, to be in the presence of sinners, coming for sinners, coming for the sake of the unrepentant. but he comes for the unrepentant in order to remake us, remake us, rebirth us, reform us, recreate us. Look at verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one coming after me is mightier than I, the sandals of whom I'm not worthy to carry. Now, again, carrying sandals, that's servant's work. John is saying, I can't even be the servant to this mighty one. And he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What's interesting about John's ministry, it's fascinating, all four gospels have John's ministry right at the beginning. And here's what every one of these gospel accounts of John the Baptist's ministry are telling us. They're telling us about his preaching and about his baptism, but they're always telling us about his message that he is not sufficient. They're always telling in each of the gospel accounts about John that he's saying, I'm not the one. Don't look at me. He's pointing to another. I mean, look at John. He gets his name from his practice of baptism, right? Verse one, we're told he's called John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, right? There's John so famous for this baptism he's performing. And yet, what does John say about his baptism? He says, my baptism is nothing in comparison to the baptism of the one that's coming. My baptism doesn't even hold a candle to the baptism of the one who comes. And throughout his ministry, John is always pointing away. I love that moment in John chapter one, verse 35, when he's uh, standing there with two of his disciples. John the Baptist had disciples, 
right? People who were following John. So two of his disciples are with John and Jesus walks by and Jesus says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's pointing with that Exodus imagery of here's the one that is gonna bear the sin of humanity, his blood shed, his blood on the doorpost of the new Exodus of our life that the angel of death can pass by. This is the one, the lamb that will save us. And what happens? Those two disciples leave John and they start following Jesus. And John doesn't run after them and say, whoa, 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 guys, come on. I, I mean, Jesus is a big deal, but you were following me. No, this is the point. Stop following me and follow him. In John chapter three, verse 30, the complaint arises among John the Baptist's disciples that Jesus is getting all the crowds now. John, you used to get all the crowds, but they're all going out to Jesus now. And he's baptizing more people than you're baptizing. And his disciples are concerned. John, should we do something about this? What does John say? He says, he must increase and I must decrease. John's whole ministry is pointing to his own limitations and pointing to the only savior, the only one who has the power and authority to save being Jesus. See, what John points to is that the baptism that Jesus brings will be a baptism of Holy Spirit and fire. It's a baptism of fire and filling. Think of the fire language. Fire is what purifies, the fire that will burn out impurities, fire that is used to purify precious metals. You think of the words of Malachi chapter three, that God is like a refining fire, that he will refine and purify the sons of Levi, Malachi says, so that they can live into righteousness, that this is the purifying work of God. Jesus ultimately bearing all of our sins in his body, taking them in his own body that we could be set free. This burning out of the sin and the wickedness that's within us. That's the baptism that he brings. And it's not just a baptism of fire, but a baptism of filling. I mean, once we're cleaned out, what do you put back inside? Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, be careful. He says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a person, it goes off to the waterless places, which we think maybe means hell, and finds five other spirits like himself, his buddies, and they go back to the old house and they go, oh, this is nice and swept clean. And they all fill the old house. And he says, the fate of that man is worse than before. The point is, it's not enough for Jesus to burn out the wickedness within us. He then needs to fill us with something else, someone else, the very Holy Spirit of God poured into our lives, transforming us, remaking us. You see, the work of Jesus and his mighty baptism, his mighty work of salvation in our lives is not about adjustment or tinkering, right? It is about rebirth. It is about recreation. It is about being remade by him. You know, when we lived in the north, north of Canada, up near the Arctic in our very first parish, we lived in a church house. We call them in the Anglican world rectories. It's where the rector lives. Some of you come from tradition where you call them a manse or a parsonage. But the point is it's a house owned by the church and the rector and family move in there. And so we moved into this house and I'll tell you, we were never more sick 
for those years than any other time in our life. Like we were just sick all the time, pneumonia, pneumonia. We were getting all kinds of respiratory illnesses. And we said, something's wrong with the house. And we kept saying, there's something wrong with the house. And the church warden said, no, the house is fine. Well, after we left, they actually did some studies and some research. And it turned out that the people who had been renting the house before us for 15 years, the previous rector had not wanted to live in the house, so they'd rented it out. This is a long story. It's going to make sense in one second. For 15 years, they'd rented it out. And the person, I guess, who rented it was running a marijuana grow op in the basement. And like a big one. And any of you who know about any of that stuff that goes on, you shouldn't know about that stuff, but if you know about those sort of things, it's, it's like hydroponics and, and all the moisture and all the chemicals and all that stuff just got into the walls, like just all the way through the walls. And that's what was making us sick. And so they, they said, well, I guess we have to figure this out. And they, they ripped out some of the, heart of the dry wood and the flooring and they put new dry wood and flooring in. They brought in like the little Geiger counter. Well, it wasn't a Geiger counter. That's like radiation. I never did very well with the uh, science stuff. I was busy doing theater. But the, um, the, um, the thing that you use to like detect chemicals, right? They, anyway, they checked and they said, it's still bad. And they put up more sheetrock and they put more boarding on the wall. And finally, nothing could be done to fix this. And they had to tear the whole house down and rebuild it. The disease had gone so deep into the bones, there was nothing they could do do to adjust it. Nothing they could do to tinker with it. It just needed to be torn down and rebuilt. And this, friends, is you and I before we meet Jesus Christ. The sin has run so deep, there is no adjustments that will be enough. We need to be remade. We need to be reborn. It's the reason why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that whoever's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. See, Jesus, John is telling us, comes for the unrepentant, those who want to repent but just can't, know they can't. And he remakes us so that we can repent, so that we can be remade into a new life that can begin living into this path of repentance and transformation, freed to repent. Look at verse 12. John says, it's a bit of a scary verse at the end. He says in verse 12 that he, Jesus, the coming one, has his winnowing fork in his hand to clear the threshing floor. He'll divide the wheat from the chaff, the wheat he will gather into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Pretty scary imagery. The winnowing fork is a first century tool meant to separate the grain from the chaff. The grain is heavy, so if you shake it, the grain will fall to the ground and the chaff will just sort of like float away and you'll gather it up and then burn it up. And so the image here is at the end, there will be a division, there will be a separation and the wheat goes home with Jesus forever and the chaff gets burned up. The challenge with this is if you've been listening to the biblical story from Genesis all the way up till now, you will rightly say, aren't all of us just chaff? I mean, honestly, if you, if you, even the best of us, like it's kind of like good looking chaff, but it's still chaff. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us in the words of Psalm 51 are sinful from birth. 
Psalm 14, God looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's any who seek after him, any who do good. There's, there's no one who does good. No, not one. I mean, God is talking about ultimate states of our heart. All of us, it seems, are chaff. So where do the wheat come from? Where will the wheat come from? Here is the gospel, friends. Some of the chaff has been turned into wheats. Because of this baptism of fire and filling, some that was meant for destruction is now made for eternal glory. It has been transformed at his hand. And this is what the prophets have been telling us. That that which is fruitless will become fruitful. That which was barren will become bountiful. Think of Isaiah chapter 62, the promise that your land shall no longer be called forsaken or desolate, but shall be called, my delight is in her and your land shall be called married. This is the picture of what God is doing in our world. He's taking chaff and turning us into wheat. And don't you see that this is the pattern? This is the flow. This is the pattern of how God always works. Grace comes first. God comes to the unrepentant and remakes us. Grace poured in first so that we can begin living for him. We can begin lives of obedient repentance. We can begin this journey, lifelong journey of repenting before God in his power, true repentance and seeing fruit. Suddenly John's word of bear fruit in keeping with repentance, which a moment ago felt like a burden, now becomes a promise. Bear fruit. You can bear fruit in keeping with repentance now because I have remade you for this life of repentance. You have potential and power within you now. Fire and filling with the Holy Spirit. It's what's promised in Ezekiel chapter 36. I will put a new heart in you and my spirit I will place in you. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah chapter 31, I will put my law within you. I will write it on your hearts. This is our new identity in Christ. And you know what's happening as a result is we're becoming more and more like him. See, the whole purpose of this life of repentance isn't this life of shame and feeling bad about ourselves. I go to church every week and, oh, I failed again. No, it's about saying God is in process of forming you into the image of his son. In the language of Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus more and more. This is the gift of what God is doing. Do you see that repentance is a gift? This life of repentance is a gift that you cannot have unless God comes in by his grace. And then it goes on and on and on, always growing more into the likeness of Christ for his glory and that the world would see and we would be an aroma to Christ in a dead and dark world. That's what Advent's about. Advent is a season of darkness where we recognize the darkness that lives within us, but the light that has come into the world and the light that he has placed in us to light our neighborhoods and our communities and our workplaces for him. This life of repentance. You know, I remember reading a number of years ago about people who work, silversmiths who work with these precious metals and they use the heat to purify them. And there was a great question asked of a silversmith. The silversmith was asked, how do you know that you've applied enough heat to actually purify the metal? 
Like, how do you know that the silver is fully purified? And the silversmith said, I know this purifying work is done when I can see my image in the silver. And this is what God is doing with us. He is the great refiner, transforming us more and more into his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image that we would look like him in this world. Friends, our world needs fixing. But you and I need fixing most of all. And the good news that John gives us on this second Sunday of Advent is that Jesus, the mighty one, has come for us unrepentant ones. And he's come to remake us by his grace, by his choice, by his power that we would begin living this life of repentance, that we would enter into a lifelong step-by-step journey of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. You know, I, I've been preaching, teaching a preaching seminar to our clergy and our students who are training up for ordination, and uh, we do it every couple months. And I don't know if I'm, I'm a good teacher um, about preaching, but I, I certainly have done a lot of preaching, so I'm sort of just sharing bits that I've learned along the way about how to preach. And some of them are very technical. Like kind of, you know, one thing I haven't covered yet, but I'm going to in a couple months will be, how do you begin and end a sermon, right? You've got to figure that out before the Lord. And here's, here's the little, little tidbit, which they're going to all hear more about and kind of opens up the, the gates a little bit so you can, you can kind of understand the process a little bit. Sometimes you, you actually will write a whole sermon having worked diligently and prayed about it and cried and wept over it. And you'll get to the end of the week and you have no idea how to wrap it up. You just, you just don't. And that's not because the Lord's not faithful. It just means you, sometimes you just get there and you're like, I, I just don't, I, I've said all this stuff and it sounds pretty good and I don't know how to wrap it up. And I go back to what a preaching professor of mine used to say. He said, if you don't know how to wrap it up, either pray or sing. <laughs> and so, how do, how do, we, how do we close this? Well, here's, here's what I think in the words of an ancient hymn. Here's what I think John is saying to us, saying to each and one of us, as we come in week after week, needing to continue in this life of repentance. Some of us perhaps don't know the Lord as the Lord yet, and you need to turn to him, and he's waiting for you today. All you need to do is ask. Ask him in. Jesus, come in. I want this work. But for those of you who already have him in your life, this work continues And it is an ongoing week by week reality. So maybe these words will speak to you. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're ready, you will never come at all. I will rise and go to Jesus. He will save me 
from my sin by the riches of his merits. There is joy and life in him. This is the one through whom we and the world get fixed. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.